this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Gavin Gillis from YGC. YGC is a spinoff from Yeoman's Capital, which was a family office down in Texas. They have the title of being the 100% only crypto family office out there. And so for those out there, this was a great conversation to understand how this came about, what they were focusing on. They've been at this for quite some time now, a few years. Um, as we know, one year in crypto is 10 years in human uh, regular life. And so Gavin and I talked about what they've been focusing on. They've been focusing on this uh, world called hybrid blockchains, uh, where you have the best of public blockchains and iterations and use cases around private blockchains. And so those are commonly called or referred to as hybrid blockchains. And a lot of this is referring to enterprise-wide uh, blockchain usage. And so we talked about why enterprises are still using private blockchains, why they're looking at hybrid blockchains, if and when we can ever get to the world of public blockchains for enterprise and what that would mean. And so this is a great conversation hearing from a family office investor. Uh, again, now, as I said, YGC is a spinoff of uh, Yeoman's Capital. And so, but hearing how a family office has been investing in this space for some time, where they were finding their ideas, how they were able to work on valuation of those different projects that, that they were investing in. So remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Gavin from YGC. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am really excited about this. I have Gavin Gillis from YGC Capital, and we're going to be talking a lot about how family offices have gotten into crypto and the blockchain. We're going to talk about a story of Yeoman's Capital, which was a family office, and how that has spun into this new fund that Gavin is working on. And we're going to talk about lots of different ways that investors on the institutional side are looking into crypto, into digital assets and blockchains, and how they're making investments in it. So, Gavin, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks, David. So, if you could, uh, give us a little bit of a background on yourself first, and then we're going to go into Yeoman's Capital, which was a family office, is a family office, and we talk about YDC. But talk about yourself first. Give us a little bit of a background. We've had this narrative where institutional quality investors and people that have been uh, more or less not necessarily within digital assets, but have been outside of that world, have entered into this world recently. So, give us a little bit of background about yourself. And what we also like to do on the show is not necessarily talk about the when Bitcoin, but we like to talk about kind of what inspired you about blockchains and the Bitcoin blockchain and about Ethereum and anything else that you've looked at. What inspired you to really start to focus on this full time? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I never thought I'd be in blockchain and I never thought I'd be in startups or anything new. I, I train classically as a, as a lawyer. Um, what my mom always wanted me to do, and that's what I thought I'd always be. Um, but I got into this uh, tech world through my brother. He was working for Nike uh, on their digital team and wanted me to come to a hackathon. I'd never been to a hackathon. I didn't know what it was. And uh, But I figured a road trip with my brother from Portland, Oregon to Seattle to spend all weekend at Microsoft would be a fun thing to do. 
And so we hopped in a car about 10 years ago and uh, we showed up to 300 people coding up brand new apps and pitching ideas. And it was in contrast to a stuffy law firm, exciting. It was like a bazaar of ideas. And uh, we, uh, we didn't even place at the hackathon. We did miserably, uh, but I'd never learned so fast in my life. Um, and so while still having a day job as an intellectual property lawyer, I started working more and more in tech and ended up launching a company um, based off of a conversation on an airplane. And uh, that ended up getting uh, support from Intel and Intel Capital. And we were able to take that to uh, uh, digital transformation teams all around the U.S. and ended up powering some of the tech that went into uh, Facebook Instant Articles, Google News, and uh, Apple News, uh, working with digital transformation for publishers. And that's what got me to Austin, Texas. And yet again, when I moved to Austin six years ago, I uh, had support from Intel, but no engineers and no team. And so knowing that I had had a great experience as a hackathon, I ended up putting one on. And this was the winter of, of 2013. And uh, the cool thing about hackathon is you see great ideas and you see terrible ideas. And <laughs> you get pitched five or six dating apps and uh, ways to you know use an app to save your seat at the bar. But then you get to really see innovative ideas too. And one guy's pitch from that hackathon really stood out to me. His name was David Johnston, and he um, pitched this idea first of Bitcoin, which few people were talking about then, uh-huh. but also that you could use what Bitcoin was built on um, to build applications, but strange ones, decentralized ones. And he was working on this paper called The General Theory of Decent- Decentralized Applications. And I got a copy of that and a copy of the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper that weekend. And I was hooked, fascinated. And uh, when they put on the first uh, Texas Bitcoin conference in 2014, uh, Vitalik was there, uh, teams from Ripple were there, and uh, ended up putting on a hackathon for about uh, 12 international teams. And Michael Turbin from BitAngels and the BitAngels team awarded a million dollars in funding prizes to that hackathon. and Storage, which is now an Atlanta-based um, blockchain project, was the winner of that that early uh, blockchain hackathon. Oh. And so I have a lot to thank for hackathons for getting into the space. And that same David Johnston, who won my first Austin hackathon, um, had you know was a mentor and a great teacher in the space, and ended up forming a family office a couple of years ago. And uh, we reconnected through some uh, community work. And he invited me to come join his family office. He had just added two team members, one from the largest um, angel group in the U.S. who was running due diligence there, and another guy named Henry Liu who was running the uh, high-growth platforms at at Facebook. And so that seemed like a pretty dynamic team to join. David, with his general theory of decentralized applications back from 2014, uh, Henry, you know, leading growth at Facebook, and Mark, who had done a lot of um, early stage due diligence. So we worked inside of a, you know, the world's first crypto crypto family office. And that was in, you know, a strange juxtaposition of worlds. You had brand new technology and a very old school structure. Um, 
which fit my motif of, you know, being a lawyer in a very quick moving world of <laughs> tech. So I think you actually, the title was the world's first 100% crypto family office. And uh, I think that uh, I love that. <laughs> I don't think there's many others out there that can say that. Um, obviously, there's been some other players in the world like Mike Novogratz and others that have had family offices that have been focusing on this. And we've talked about a lot about uh, other family offices that have been involved in this space. But to say the world's first 100% uh, crypto family office was something special. So let's talk a little bit about Yeoman's Capital and then talk about the spin out to YGC Capital, which is where you're at right now. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to kind of talk about is, you know, it seems that over there's been over 40 direct investments in blockchain technology when you guys were there at Yeoman's and everything was working. And so it was focused on early stage uh, kind of projects and applications and platforms there. I was curious, and I think it'd be great for listeners to understand from an investor's perspective, especially from a family office and an institutional quality investor's perspective, how are you finding over the last few years, how are you guys sourcing deals? And it sounds like obviously hackathons were very important for you. Were hackathons also really important for sourcing those deals? Where were some of the other kind of you know network effects where you were able to find opportunities? Let's talk a little bit about that. And then I want to talk about how you actually were evaluating these opportunities, the talent and the teams. So let's talk about sourcing first, because I think that's really important for other listeners that are family offices and institutional investors. How are they, how are you finding deals then? And obviously subsequently, you know, you can obviously talk about how you're finding deals now too. Absolutely. So in, inside of uh, Yeoman's Capital, the family office, uh, David had built a great network of, of early founders. Um, there's some incredible connective tissue that, that, that um, is threaded through a lot of the, the projects stemming from, from work in, in 2013 and 2014 around colored coins and uh, early Ethereum days that still uh, has a long reach into projects that are just launching now. Uh, and so within the family office, a lot of uh, uh, David's deal flow came from the fact that um, he, he really had a servant mentality and, and he, he looks to help first. So um, I, I, it's a strange thing to say, but in the blockchain space, a lot of the way you can differentiate is to you know, really focus on um, finding ways to, to help these entrepreneurs along their path because there is no go-to-market strategy that's really standardized yet. There are no best practices. Mm -hmm. And so David put in a lot of time and a lot of hours evangelizing what you could do, supporting and connecting entrepreneurs. And because of that, he became known kind of as the DApps guy, the decentralized applications guy. Mm -hmm. And over time built a portfolio that was completely crypto denominated. Some of those things are, you know, digital assets that more resemble equities and others were more token focused. But the whole thesis for the family office was to look at that decentralized application vision and focus on finding the leadership and the, the programs that could bring a fundamental change to lives of a billion people or more. So a lot of the thesis of the family office was looking at projects that were massively ambitious but they had founders with experience that, that could pull that off. And we found some of the best teams by looking at prior experience at telcos, mm -hmm. um, other infrastructure companies, uh, major enterprises, um, 
and other types of, you know, prior government work or other things that would lend to experience bringing bringing massive amounts of computing power or or fundamental change to projects at scale. Now I'm going to stop you there for a second. So I think this is a fundamental important kind of note here. So you're saying that there were teams that had prior experience at telcos, prior experience with government agencies. I think there's been a narrative and it's a false narrative that a lot of the early kind of crypto native founders were anarchists that were trying to break the systems. It sounds to me, though, that these teams are actually stacked with professionals, with people that have been within the system, that were just kind of viewing things in a different light based off of distributed and decentralized technologies. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, there's when you're trying to draw a movement, and it's good to have a hacker ethos, a, a the ability with, to, to get people to, to believe in your project and step out very early and, 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 and try new things. And that sometimes takes some, some creative vision around, hey, we're going to break a system and put it back together. Uh, but, but hackers, you know, if you, if you look at the early days and the roots of that word, that's different than crackers. You know, they weren't the ones trying to actually break systems. They were trying to find quicker ways to do things or more innovative ways to build on it. And so if you look at sites like Hacker News that, you know, is the, the named group of uh, Y Combinator, a very respected tech incubator, I think reclaiming that hacker name is a good thing. There's a lot in crypto that was very hacker-esque, um, trying to deploy smart code at scale. And that took people with industry experience. They, they knew what they were doing. They may have had more of a libertarian bent. They may have had more of a optimistic outlook to, as to what they built before. But if you look at the types of groups I mentioned, I mean, telcos manage massive network effects. They run giant nodes. They know how to bring infrastructure to scale. Governments, you know, touch on the lives of millions of people. And they, you know, they know how to deploy policy and programs and, and to govern. And a lot of these projects are governance projects. Um, and so there is, there is valid experience in those industries that can be brought into the blockchain sphere. And so putting on your investor hat, we'll talk, you know, obviously, you know, from the days at Yeoman to the days at YGC. So putting on your investor hat from the last few years to now, let's talk about some things that are important in terms of understanding the the mechanisms and the overall ecosystem in digital assets and blockchains. So one of the first things, you know, a family office investor would do when looking at an early stage investment was looking at the total addressable market. And so how would you, when you were looking at some of these opportunities, how would you actually decipher and discern what the total addressable market was with some of these things that were effectively trying to change overall legacy systems? Were you using more of a relative value type of approach? Or how would you actually, discern, you know, kind of as I said, as I said, discerning the overall total addressable market for some of these opportunities? David and the family office is really good at looking at just big, dumb numbers to, to, to look at TAM. <laughs> So when you're looking at total addressable market, you know, and if he's looking at things as a store of value, he'd just pull what, you know, what, what is the value of gold and start from there and then break this down into utility and and subsets. Uh, It reminds me of the anecdotal story of Elon Musk when asked, you know, to start SpaceX, you know, he, he looked at the cost of the rocket programs and what it takes to get a payload into space. And he, he engineered from first principles and said, hey, you know, what is the spot price of titanium? If that's what these rockets are made of, 
well, let's start with the biggest, you know, ingredient or cost input. How, how much does titanium cost on the open market? Um, and then working up and, and building engineering assumptions from there. So likewise here, we're talking about the potential for massive networks. And so trying to put a, a, a total addressable market for the internet, pre-internet, is, I mean, I don't think anyone could have estimated that with any sincerity or any credibility. Uh, here we have parallels. We look at what digital transformation has done for uh, cloud services, for AI and machine learning, uh, for the internet itself. And some of these projects in the blockchain space aim to take a part of that market or replace a large portion of that market. And so as you look across different projects and different investments, it, it helps to actually do the reading, to dive into the white paper, to talk to the founders and understand what, what market they're actually addressing here. Right. So moving from the kind of addressable market to pricing some of these deals, it has been, I think, fair to say that even as relative, kind of if you relate it to traditional venture capital, where we're seeing massive swings, I think SoftBank has been responsible, and I'll say this publicly, that you know, I'm not alone, that SoftBank has caused a massive distortion in valuations in later stage, more kind of middle equity type of you know, C, D, you know, uh, kind of uh, you know, seeds, uh, Series A, Series D type of things. And then now we've seen a distortion in the earlier stage in traditional venture where we're seeing seed and Series A having overpricing because so much money is decided that they can no longer compete with SoftBank, so they're moving earlier into, you know, as I said, Cedar A. And so talk to us a little bit about from what you're seeing over the last few years and obviously, you know, bringing it up to speed. We'll talk more about YGC again in terms of how you're evaluating deals. But in terms of valuation, so looking at the total adjustable market, but then also then now we're moving towards kind of pricing these deals in a market that is starting to see a lot of capital come in. How are you seeing the valuation story play out over the last few years? Um, I, I mean, this if you if you go back to 2016, 2017, and, and the first half of 2018, you know, did this turned all of the investing in on on its head. Uh, investments, honestly, uh, end of this year, next year, are moving more back into rational territory, and uh, it's things where you can take a VC mentality and and those staged rounds and, and get closer to the truth. Uh, but everything was, was completely different two years ago. Um, when we look at valuation and if you go back to first principles, this is about, you know, what is the value of a network? Um, we have Bob Metcalf was actually a mentor of one of my last companies. Uh, so the Metcalf's law, uh, I, I, there is some ap application there and it's worth looking at that. So it's, as you think of the, the number of nodes in a network and the number of members of a network and, and look at its value squared. Um, that's, that's where we start from. So we're trying to understand, you know, what is a public protocol? If we're focusing on a protocol layer, what is the protocol promise, promising? What are its actual credible chances of, of going to market? And if it replaces something, you know, what, what is the value of that replaced infrastructure? Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, there's been this kind of discussion of replacement. So there's been this idea a few years ago, and that's kind of died out. But 
this idea of a decentralized Twitter, a decentralized Facebook, uh, a decentralized Google. And we're seeing things like IPFS come into the world where we're seeing interplanetary file storage. We're seeing storage, as you mentioned before. We're seeing this whole decentralized stack, which we'll talk a little bit more about because I'm sure that's some of the areas that you're looking into. But as it relates to what we were just talking about, you know, how do you, where do you think the value is really accruing right now? Are you thinking that, you know, as it was in early days, you know, Internet 1.0, are you looking at the kind of the overall stack? And that's where you guys are pointing to, or that's where you're looking at right now at YGC. You know, where do you see the value being accrued? Or is it in these different protocols that have all these different network effects? Or are you seeing things in L2, L3, L4, you know, L4? Where are you seeing the value being captured these days? So if we, if we go back to the Gartner study, I mean, they're, they're saying there's $3.1 trillion in value by 2030. And so working back from, from their math and trying to understand, you know, why, would, why they put that number on the total market value of blockchain, we, we see at the infrastructure layer, you have, you have decentralized computing power. And that has different flavors based off of the characteristics and choices made in configuring a protocol. So some focus on security, some focus on permissions, some focus on integrations, others focus on speed or privacy. Uh, the market is now in the process of evaluating those different trade-offs. So I, I choose Gmail for my personal email. Mm -hmm. In choosing that, there are certain trade-offs. If I focused more on privacy, there are other options for me. If I focused more on, you know, a proprietary technology stack, there are other op options for me. Um, the market is now evaluating blockchains, and and I think at the at the uh, protocol layer, there's still a lot of battles to be won. And and then when we look on the application layer, on top of that, that's that's where this could really really get interesting. We focused at YGC on what enterprises are doing. We, we look at what's going on in the public protocol uh, world. There's a lot of ecosystem funds springing up. There's a lot of grant funding to try and get transaction volume flowing to these protocols so that the market can show, hey, this protocol is actually, you know, utilizing the token economy. They're actually transacting on the network. This thing is live. It's real. You know, it's filling up. Uh, we believe that enterprises will drive much of the fundamental growth for public protocols if done correctly. What we have right now in the U.S., David, is a regulatory environment that dis discourages enterprise use of tokens, um, both investing in them, holding them, or transacting on those networks. And so there needs to be a better model for engagement. So let's talk more about that. So enterprise, that's a, that's, a, that's a very key word in my opinion. Enterprise to me could also mean a relation to corporations. Enterprises are businesses that usually have investors and they have governance. They have to make sure that things are secure. Um, and so we've seen more of an emphasis uh, from the corporations and the enterprises to look at private blockchains because data um, and I can understand this trade secrets, you know, if it's a supply and logistics company, you know, obviously their trade, you know, their shipping routes, things of that nature that give them an edge to their competitors. 
they necessarily do not want to see that on a public chain because, you know, obviously on a public blockchain, the idea is that it's everything is immutable. Everything is tra- is fully transparent. Um, and so we've seen, obviously, some things arise, especially on Ethereum, where you're starting to see some privacy layers. You're starting to see some things on side chains. Um, you're starting to see some use of zero-knowledge proofs. But let's talk about enterprises and let's talk about kind of private versus public blockchains. Where are you seeing kind of uh, more attention? And do you think that, you know, the utilization of private blockchains is really something that is going to be beneficial for the overall growth of this space? Great question. So I want to unpack that a little bit and I want to draw some parallels. Um, So first, um, I think this is a really important question to answer, both for how we invest our time, our resources and our focus. Uh, recall that I started as an intellectual property attorney. So I would work with companies and, and we would work on their strategy for how they they protect their, their data, their assets, their innovations. And if you think of it as concentric circles, so the, the, the closest, the smallest ring being the thing closest to you and the, the things that a company want, would want to protect the most. Uh, that that requires a certain strategy. There's other things that are in the middle that, that need to be protected, but, but are okay, you know, being registered or being um, reported. And then there are other things that um, you don't care if they, they're reported and you don't care if they go out of the world. And sometimes it's more beneficial if they do. So if you and I are starting a software company and we, we started that outer ring, um, we'll hire some engineers and we'll code things. And on that outer ring of knowledge, we're okay giving that away writing about it, publishing to open source, sharing that code with other companies, exposing that code in our applications, uh, because that's that's a vital part of our business. In that middle ring, you know, we'll file patents, uh, copyrights and other intellectual property protections. We'll run our, our software off of uh, software licenses, and that, that'll protect that, that middle ring, that that, uh, you know, that our transactional level of data, our transactional level of intellectual property, but on that innermost ring, it's not patents that companies file. They don't even patent them because in, in patenting something, you, you release that information. They keep it private. And in intellectual property, we call those trade secrets. Um, those are things that you don't even discuss with your patent attorney because you're keeping those, you know, deep inside the company. A lot of the knee-jerk reaction to enterprise blockchain is we don't understand it, so we'll treat it just like we treated the internet 20 years ago. Uh, the first thing we'll do is keep it all on site. We'll have a corporate intranet where it's on our own servers, it's on our own code, uh, we can monitor it and completely control it. There'll be zero leaks. And that's what we're seeing a lot in terms of enterprise deployments right now is there they're, they're experimenting with the concept of blockchain, but none of the data is actually leaving the premise or, or touching any outside repository. Uh, beyond that, you know, we're seeing projects that are, are now, you know, reaching out and actually connecting between companies. And that intra-company transaction layer, we think still has a place on a private blockchain. And a private blockchain is very valid for that. Uh, IBM's done a lot of work with Hyperledger Fabric and it's working quite well in some of these trade groups to uh, to be able to transmit sensitive information between companies under contract, under license, 
and and speed the transaction layer that's happening there. But there is so much of these middle ring and outer ring of data that's not being captured by a private blockchain and frankly clogs up a private blockchain and threatens the strength of that entire network. We believe that public protocols are on the other end of that. They're fantastic in terms of scale, infrastructure, innovation, but they may not be best for protecting that company or intercompany sensitive data. Um, and so there's something in the middle there, which you know we're calling and others are calling hybrid blockchain. Mm-hmm. So the path for hybrid blockchain lets enterprises do everything they want to do. It lets them protect the most sensitive uh, company data within a private blockchain um, through something like Hyperledger Fabric or their own databases. It lets them coordinate with open source resources, industry data, public integrations, and the other things that would make a blockchain system very robust, transactional, forward thinking and fast moving by going to that open layer. And then our team has been focused on building that middleware, the the ability to integrate between public and private blockchains through through hybridization. Yeah, I think that's that's where we see a lot of the future for enterprise. I think that's really important because I think a lot of people, again, have it's either black and white. Oh, everything has to either be on a public blockchain or everything has to be on a private blockchain. Well, wait a second. No, that doesn't have to be the case. We've seen, obviously, with JP Morgan, with kind of experimenting with Quorum. We've seen companies and projects like Cadena, which we've had on the show, you know, obviously employing this hybrid approach. We've had other projects that have employed this hybrid approach. And so obviously there is, and you, you're hitting it on the head, there are different layers of data that can obviously be on a public blockchain, and there are different layers of information that could be utilize, utilized on a private blockchain. So I agree that it doesn't have to just be black or white. Um, and so I'm curious, in terms of the investment kind of thesis, we're getting into that, and we're obviously kind of unpacking what you guys are looking at at YGC now. Um, so looking at enterprises, where in the general taxonomy of, of digital assets and crypto and blockchains are you looking at? Is it in kind of L1 to L2 kind of scaling solutions? Is it governance? Um, is it this notion of kind of, you know, as you mentioned, hybrid blockchains where you see things being used like side chains and, as I said, zero knowledge proofs? Where are you kind of focusing, if you could bucket out, you know, several different kind of sectors, uh, dare I use a word from legacy financial systems sectors, what sectors are you looking at in terms of digital assets and blockchains? No, I think sector makes sense. I, we're really focused on the things that um, that make strong use cases for blockchain. Um, we are not the most innovative team out there. There's There's people pushing the envelope a lot farther than we are. But we're looking at things where you can take a public protocol and you can prove that something, a transaction happened by writing to it. Um, and you can reference that inside of a private blockchain. Uh, and so when you look at what that enables with, with, with you know, a, a simple definition is we can operate very well within the world's supply chain, you know, showing that something went from point A to point B and it is what it says it is. And since you know the identity of that object, the identity of the parties, um, because identity is baked into your solution, you can then build contracts off of that um, that facilitate faster transactions, uh, automated transactions, and better business processes. And so I, I, we try to take a lot of the jargon out of it, but the real focus is, is can we build a better 
and more digitally transformed business by by verifying what we have in a process, being uh, completely accountable to it, and removing the audit risk uh, that you have in traditional databases. Now, is that chain agnostic, or are you finding most of that on Ethereum? Where are you finding the most of the opportunity sets these days? So, so it's really fun. Um, we've been working with about since we were in the family office first. We we've, we've talked with over sixty different protocols, um, and we've evaluated many of them. Um, we're still evaluating others, uh, but but we'll be announcing in the coming weeks some of the the first protocols we picked. Um, to, to do this, we, the protocol partners have been very interested in our work because, you know, the promise there of bringing enterprise scale and, and recognition to a protocol, it's a big deal, uh, because again, it helps them towards their thesis of being the dominant network for a certain use case. Um, so I think the short answer is it's not just Ethereum. Um, we think Ethereum does a lot of things really well, but every protocol has trade-offs. And so we're running multiple projects with multiple protocols right now um, to test out, you know, which networks are going to be robust, which protocols have a, a strong innovation pipeline, and which things are most responsive to enterprise needs. Now, when you release that, is that going to be on a Medium post or something? I want to make sure that the listeners know where to go. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we'll post it on our, on our webpage and we'll push it out through LinkedIn. Great. And so, you know, one of the things that we like to do, we've had a great conversation about kind of what you guys have been looking at. Um, I also know that, you know, it's, you're creating an enterprise blockchain venture studio and also an attached fund. Is there anything you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So the, the, the venture studio was, was a way to help with our fundraising for the fund and to really prove out this thesis for hybrid blockchain. Um, We'll be launching um, several ventures over the coming months. Uh, we, have, we have two that are launching in the next 30 days. Um, and the fund will be focused on being an ecosystem fund, an accelerator fund uh, for these new ventures mm-hmm. and other supporting um, plays that we can make in this enterprise um, hybrid ecosystem. So a very hands-on investor. I think that's basically what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and the the nice part is our our LPs and our our partners are are deep in it as well. They see what enterprises are doing. We have enterprise members on the uh, boards of these new companies, um, and it's very focused on you know on real work, uh, starting with use cases that have already been launched. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that Gartner report is they believe that ninety percent of those uh, early enterprise blockchain implementations will be swapped out within eighteen months. And so there's a lot of work for our teams to, to work within those early implementations to help find scaling solutions and a, a better go-to-market or product path. So we've learned a little bit about you in terms of your past in the professional landscape. And obviously, you know, as a lawyer, moving through uh, into this world of blockchains and digital assets. Let's learn a little bit more about you on a personal level, as anyone who's listened to the show knows, I like to kind of pick on two things to kind of figure out what you're putting into your brain. Um, so the two areas I'd like to look at are what you've been reading, and hopefully it's not just white papers and things about crypto and protocols, but hopefully there are some other things that you've been able to read that are something that 
really struck you and something that you think is really important. And then also what you're listening to in terms of music while you're traveling, when you're getting some downtime, when you're at the gym, something that, you know, things that you listen to that really get you going. So what you've been reading and what music you listen to. I appreciate that. Um, right now I'm, I'm, I'm reading the count of Monte Cristo for the fourth time. Um, it's one of those classics that, that, that never stops. And it, you know, it goes back to the power of planning. Um, it's a great adventure book. Um, but I like to read, uh, a lot. And, uh, my favorite thing to do is read business books in pairs. And my, my, my favorite pairing I just did a couple months ago was reading Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit, mm-hmm. um, alongside, and my family gives me the hardest time about reading multiple books at once, but reading, reading The Power of Habit alongside, uh, Russell Brand's recovery book. Wow. And I, um, those, those two books seem like an odd pairing, you know, Charles Duhigg's taking a behavioral scientist view as to how do we create habits? What, what forms a habit? Um, and recovery kind of tackles the same thing. It's, it's Russell Brand, who's a, you know, a, a famous actor, and uh, podcaster and speaker. Uh, but his, his exploration of his own addictions and how he as an atheist and a very, you know, sworn atheist went through a God focused 12 step program. Uh, and if you can pick up the audiobook version, it's in his own voice and he's just fascinating to listen to, but both of them kind of cue into this, this cycle of habits. And when we think of habits, we think of goals and we think of, um, you know, hard things, diets, exercise, um, you know, th- things that are very usually rigorous and painful. And the breakthrough that, that Duhigg does in his book is he goes upstream from that. And he talks about the cues, the things that happen um, before we actually click into our habits. So what triggers us to perform a bad, bad habit? What, what gets us to binge eat? Um, or what, what triggers a good habit? What gets us to go to the gym? Um, and when you get into that, there's a, there's a phenomenal thing you can click into, which is really understanding you know, what your, what your, your gut impulses are and then reprogramming those impulses to the behaviors you want. And that's the same epiphany that Brand gets to in his book. Um, you know, even though he hated the 12 step program, kicking and screaming, he and, and, you know, real researchers can't deny the efficacy. Uh, and so he talks about his own reprogramming. And so I just thought that was a fascinating pairing of books to, to look at at the same time. Wow. That is a, I like the pairing. I also get some flack for that. I think I'm reading um, Tim Wu's book again um, about kind of technological innovation throughout the last hundred years. Um, And it's super interesting because it talks about the stories between Western Union and Ma Bell. Um, And then there's other stories that uh, implicitly talk about um, kind of technology and how legacy systems could have you know, kind of adopted to them or kind of adapted to them and they didn't. And then much like you, I'm also reading Bitcoin billionaires, Ben Mesrick's book. Um, just, just because I, I don't, I, I believe in this notion. I think it's, um, from the guys at Farnham street 
where you don't have to just necessarily, and I think Naval has also talked about this, where you don't have to necessarily just read one book and just try to go from, you know, one to 300 and just finish it. It doesn't have to be A to Z. You can pick your parts and you can find it. You can put it down. You can read something else. And so I love people that also kind of use that mentality because I, for a very long time, got very frustrated with reading and it was always have to be A to Z and it doesn't have to be A to Z. So hopefully other listeners, you know, realize that it does not have to be A to Z. So also, no, that's, that's really good advice. One of the best things for reading that I've, I've done is to free myself from needing to finish a book, um, whether it's a nonfiction book um, that I can just snack on, like you say, or a, a fiction book. If I'm not catching the plot, I don't I don't plow through it anymore. I just put it down and move on to the next one. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't need to be. Yes, there's obviously we're spending money on these things, but you can't drive yourself crazy because it's not going to work. And then you're going to hate reading. And that just is a terrible thing. So, um, mom, if you're listening, obviously, you know, your, your kid finally started to like reading. It only took 40 years. So there you go. Um, <laughs> good mom. Good mom. And then in terms of listening to, I'm, I'm pretty boring there. Um, movie soundtracks and other things just in the background. Um, we, uh, we've got a bunch of new people joining the team. So it's, it's headphones time. We don't get to blur music as much anymore. Uh, but I think I think music speaks to a lot of people. And for me, uh, I'm not musical, but uh, have a good appreciation for something well scored. It makes makes us feel like we're heroes to our own soundtrack. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, so the last thing that we like to do with guests on the show is uh, have them tell people where to find out more about what you guys are building and what you guys are doing. So feel free to do that now. Awesome. Well, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Gavin Gillis. Um, uh, we have a little bit on our website, ygc.capital. Um, but the best way to connect with us is we, we speak at a lot of conferences, both in you know enterprise software as well as blockchain. Um, so uh, if we connect on LinkedIn, we'll, we, we post where we speak as well. Um, we'll be back on the circuit this fall. Uh, David, I just want to say thank you so much for the great questions and for the time today. Uh, this has been fantastic. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, it is a pleasure having someone that was at a family office that was really focused on crypto and blockchains. Just again, because people who listen to this, it is happening and there is more momentum. It's not just a few people. It's not just anarchists. It is real people, real investors, real dollars going into these systems. So, Gavin, thank you for joining us. Hopefully we can catch up with you guys in a few months and see how things are progressing. And uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.